Well, good morning, Riverside. It is good to be together, to worship together this morning, and especially to open up God's Word together. And uh, if you're here for the first time this morning, you're at a good time, because last week we just began a new series in the book of Esther. And the series title is On Purpose. And if you weren't with us last week, you might just go back and, and check online and listen to the message last week, which was setting the stage. That was chapter one of the book of Esther. But we've also included in your bulletin an insert that has kind of that historical context. It has some of those major events and dates leading up to uh, the start of the account of Esther. So this morning we're going to be uh, continuing in chapter two. But before we jump into that, let me just introduce it a little bit. Um, if you're familiar with the world of business, I'm sure you know that one of the keys to success is having the right people in the right place at the right time. Would you agree? And there's a whole segment of business that's dedicated to just this thing. And it's known as HRM, or Human Resource Management, and it plays a really vital role in any company. And it includes tasks like recruiting, training, development, placement, performance management, compensation. All of those are the role of the human resources department. Now, um, it's been 10 years now since I left the corporate world, 10 years this month. But back then, I worked for a global distributor of electrical and data communications products. And, and I did a lot of recruiting and training and development as well as the IT stuff. And we knew we had to have the right people. They were a key to success. And we had about 10,000 employees at the time and 800 locations around the country. It's almost double the employees now since I left. It grew. But these people, they're in, in 800 locations, and our goal, our purpose was to supply 1.5 million products to 150,000 customers all around the world. And to do that, we had to have people in the right places. And, and it didn't always go off without a hitch, but it went reasonably smooth, smoothly. So... Now, if an ordinary company can arrange all of these people and have them where they need them to accomplish their purpose, don't you think God can do that as well? Let me read you a fascinating verse. I'm sure you've read it before, but be prepared to be blown away as you see it from this perspective of God arranging people for his good purpose. The passage is Acts chapter 17 verses 26 and 27, and it says this, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Did you catch that? God determined the times in the exact places for every person and he did this to further his purpose which is the salvation of mankind have you ever thought that God placed you in a specific point in time and a specific country and a specific location and he did it for a purpose to further your chance of coming to know him 
and, and to assist those around you to do the same. This is his clearly stated purpose. But there's another thing I find really fascinating about this passage. Notice, first of all, that there's a lot of sovereignty in it. It says he determined the times and places. God is God, and he can do that. He's sovereign. But there's also a lot of free will in this passage. Do you see it there? It says, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. That's our responsibility to respond to God's revelation to us. I don't believe God forces himself on anyone. He reveals himself and mankind has a responsibility to respond. So yes, God is sovereign, and yes, mankind has a responsibility. And you see both of these in this passage, and we're going to see both of them in the book of Esther as well. And so as we get back into our series this morning, the title of the series again is On Purpose, and it aligns with the theme of the book, and that is God's providence. It's God working behind the scenes to accomplish his purpose. And I gave this definition last week. Providence is God working behind the scenes, orchestrating the ordinary things in life to achieve his extraordinary purpose. That's providence. It's not something miraculous necessarily. You don't see any miracles in the book of Esther. You see God working through the ordinary things to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. And so we can't see him. We don't see even his name in the book of Esther. We look out, we don't see God physically, but we see the evidence of him. We see the evidence of him throughout this book and in our own lives and all around us. So God orchestrating the ordinary things to accomplish his extraordinary purpose. God places people exactly where he wants them to accomplish this purpose. So the message this morning is placing the people and we're going to be in Esther chapter 2. It's 23 verses long. And the outline will have three parts. We're going to look first of all at the search in verses 1 through 7. And then secondly, the selection in 8 through 20. And finally, the scheme in verses 21 through 23. So again, it's a little longer text. So we won't read the whole thing up front, but we'll read it a little bit at a time as we work our way through it. So we'll begin with the search. And verse 1 of Esther chapter 2 says, Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Let me just stop there for a moment. Because again, your translation might say King ah Ahasuerus. And Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. Xerxes is the Greek name. It's talking about the same guy. So don't be confused by if your translation says Ahasuerus. And verse 16 tells us, first of all, well, that this is now seven years later. And remember what chapter 1 said? Or I'm sorry, verse 16 says it's seven years into Xerxes' reign. Chapter 1 said it was three years into his reign. So four years have transpired between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And look at how the, ver the chapter begins with the word later. Later. Four years later, in fact. Now during that time, Xerxes made his unsuccessful campaign to conquer Greece. 
Remember we talked about that last week. That's probably what that six-month banquet was all about, where he had his, his military officials and the noblemen there. They were planning this invasion of Greece, and he was unsuccessful. So now Xerxes is returned back home. He's a defeated man, and his thoughts return to domestic matters. And so it says he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. He remembered that she refused to come to him when he summonsed her in a drunken state. She refused to come and parade before all of these people that he had gathered together. And as a result, he deposed her. He took away her crown. She was no longer the queen. And then it says in verse 2, Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. This advice appealed to the king. That's probably an understatement. It played right into his hedonistic, egotistic personality, didn't it? I'm sure he was thrilled at the idea. He probably said, what are you waiting for? Get going. Well, it was almost like an ancient version of The Bachelor, one man with all of these women to choose from. You know what's interesting? I don't watch this show, by the way, but Hollywood thinks a lot like a pagan nation, don't they? <laughs> They're on the same track with that. But Xerxes was thrilled with this idea. And so he appointed and, and empowered these commissioners to go find the most beautiful women in the entire empire. Now, we could almost read this like some kind of fairy tale like Cinderella, like, let a search be made of my entire kingdom. But it almost sounds Disney-esque when you think about it. But knowing what we know about men and about government officials and about power, I doubt that this selection process was handled with much decency. And I doubt that it protected the modesty of these young girls. I could be wrong, but I suspect these girls were subjected to great humiliation as these commissioners went out town to town throughout the empire. And then on top of that, those who were selected were taken by force back to Susa. Now remember from last time, this Persian territory was some 3,300 miles across from Kush down in, in, uh, near Egypt all the way over to India. It was a huge territory, and although Susa was about in the middle of it, it could still mean up to a two-month journey from home. These girls might never see their family again. And so, verse 5 says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, and son of Shemai, and son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So we're introduced here to Mordecai. 
Now, he himself would not have been taken and carried into exile because he would have had to be over 100 years old at this point. They had been in exile for 100 years. Mordecai was born in exile, but one or more of his ancestors that are mentioned in this verse would have been carried away into exile. And it was probably his great-grandfather, Kish. And so they were taken captive, it says, along with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Take a look at this tablet that was unearthed. It's known as the Babylonian Chronicle 5. And it chronicles the first 11 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon. And it specifically mentions the siege of Jerusalem and the surrender of King Jehoiakim. It's on display in the British Museum, and it confirms exactly what verse 6 is saying. And then there's this really amazing tablet. It lists the rations that were given to King Jehoiakim while he was captive in Babylon. It was discovered in an underground storage vault near the Ishtar Gate, that big gate entering into Babylon, the gate that Daniel and Jehoiakim and all the rest of them would have gone through. This is in the Berlin Museum of the Ancient Near East. And again, these confirm the historicity of the, of the biblical account. So, Mordecai, it says in verse 7, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Well, Hadassah was her Jewish name. They think it meant Myrtle. And, and Esther is her Persian name, which meant star. And so here's this young girl. Imagine losing both your mother and your father while living in a foreign land. Now, she was native in the sense that she was born there, but she's surrounded by people that don't even speak her language. She doesn't have a mother and a father, but her cousin, Mordecai, stepped in and he raised her like his own daughter. Now, he was probably quite a bit older than Esther, and yet he loved her. And we're going to see that as this, as this chapter moves forward. So this is a search that Xerxes commissioned. We want to look next at the selection in verses 8 through 20. And it says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. Now, the Roman historian Josephus records that Xerxes selected 400 women. Now, uh, Josephus was first century historian. He was a Jewish historian to the Romans. We don't know if that's accurate. That's some five centuries later, but it was probably close. It was a significant number of young ladies from all over this enormous territory. Imagine how difficult this would have been for both Esther and Mordecai. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, torn away from home. I went through something like that when I was growing up about 13 years old, it was very, very difficult. And Mordecai had been this loving father to Esther. And now because of a pagan king's edict, she's being torn from her home. How would you feel in a situation like that? 
Again, it's easy to read it now and say, well, no worries, it all works out in the end. But they didn't see the end then. I wonder how they felt. I mean, they might have felt like their whole world was falling apart. Like, where's God? Has he forsaken us? Has he forgotten? Where's God in this? I'm being ripped from my home and taken into this harem. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? Like your world's falling apart? Maybe it's something like the loss of a long-time job or a medical diagnosis that comes back or maybe the loss of a loved one and everything changes. You may wonder, where's God in the midst of this? Has he forgotten about me? I'm reminded of a song uh, that Casting Crowns released several years ago, and it's called Just Be Held. And the chorus says this, So when you're on your knees and answers seem so far away, you're not alone. Stop holding on and just be held. Your world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. I am on the throne. Stop holding on and just be held. What a great thought. Your world's not falling apart. It's falling into place. I'm on the throne. Stop holding on and just be held. You know what? That takes faith to believe that. Faith in a God who has a good purpose in everything he does. But then we sometimes get to see it even firsthand in our own lives. Maybe you've seen this in your own life. Everything seemed like it was falling apart. And then on the other side, years later, you look back and you see how God was orchestrating that whole situation providentially for your good and for his glory. Well, the bridge of the song says this, and not a tear is wasted. In time, you'll understand. I'm painting beauty with ashes. Your life is in my hands. And I love that. And this is what we see in the book of Esther. But it's, again, easy to see in hindsight, looking back, once you know how it all ends. It's a lot harder when you're in the middle of it, isn't it? God's at work. And he's placing people in our lives. And he's placing us in just the right place to accomplish a purpose that he has for us. And he can make something extraordinary happen. Before we go on, I want to look at a little more of the archaeology. Here again is a picture of the ruins of Susa and the citadel. And the palace complex alone covered more than 300 acres. And notice it sits up on an embankment. That's not a natural embankment. Xerxes' father Darius had that built by hand. It's an adobe embankment, 50 feet tall, and it was lined with mud bricks. And it created a foundation for the whole complex, but it also let it sit up above all of the surrounding countryside so people could see it. Now, the woman's quarters is this area shaded in red. This is where Esther and the girls would have been taken. It's more than 500 feet long from end to end. And last time, remember, we saw that enormous complex with those 36 columns, 70 feet tall. Just to give this a sense of scale, well, first of all, here's, here's some other points in that. But here's about how big that palace would be on this whole setting. I mean, this place is, this thing is enormous. And so it gives us a little sense of the, of the scale of this. But here's an overhead drawing. 
of the entire area. This has been uh, developed by the archaeologists who've been uncovering it. And notice how the quarters are divided into two, where I put the red circle there. The women's quarters or the harem were divided into two. Just make note of that because we're going to see a reference to that in a few verses. And then here's a ground level view of one of the rooms. This is one of the rooms in the women's quarters in the harem. This might have been right where Esther was. She was in one of these rooms. Now remember last week we said that uh, Persia actually had four capitals. This one, Susa, was kind of the winter retreat for the kings. But they had four capitals and they had very similar palaces. There was a palace in Persepolis that was a lot like the one here. It's one that Xerxes built. And here's just a part of that palace. And it was better preserved and parts of it had been restored. And that is the harem. It's called the harem of Xerxes in Persepolis. And you can see the size of this. All we have in Susa is just the foundation. But then this is a reconstructed hall within the harem of Xerxes at Persepolis. So this is kind of like what Esther's surroundings would have looked like there in Susa. It was a magnificent structure. It's, it's a far cry from just the dirt ruins that we see in Susa. So I hope it's helpful to kind of connect the biblical text with the archaeology to see these things in person. These are real historical events that are accurately recorded in Scripture. So back to verse 9 then. It says, the girl pleased him and won his favor, meaning Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now, Esther was shown this special favor by Haggai. People who are born with a lot of natural beauty tend to be treated better. I think you see that in our society. But it had to be more than just that with Esther because she's surrounded by 400 beautiful women. I think it was also her attitude. I doubt that she acted like someone who had a chip on her shoulder. I doubt she acted like, she, like someone who's angry and with an unpleasant attitude. Um, even though she was torn from her home by these government officials, I think she was pleasant and respectful. And there's this inward beauty that people took note of as well as the outer beauty. Why do I say this? Well, because we see the same thing in Joseph when he was taken into captivity and Daniel as well. They always had this great respect for the authority of their captors. And even in the New Testament, we see Paul and Silas singing worship songs in prison and then later witnessing and caring for their, their captors. So there's this joy in the face of persecution. And that's how we should be too. And yet what I see in Esther and Joseph and Daniel is very different than what I see in a lot of Christians today in the world. They're facing just the little smallest piece of persecution. And yet what I often see is anger and bitterness and frustration, almost a hatred for the people who oppose them. But that's not what God wants us to display. 
just, all you got to do is look at James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy. This is so convicting. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And 1 Peter 4, 13. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. There's no bitterness and anger and frustration or hatred in those verses. The only way we can have joy in the midst of something like these people went through is to be trusting in a God who's in control, who's providential, who's working in the world around us to orchestrate all of those things for his good purpose. It's the only way that we can show joy. And if we're not showing joy in the midst of those things, are we really trusting that God's in control? That he's on the throne? That he, we're in his hands? So this is challenging. This is challenging to me. It's probably challenging to you too. But I've seen many of you go through severe trials. Trials that threaten your livelihood or your very life. And I've seen you with a strong, positive faith and testimony of the love of God all the way through. And then you come out the other side and there's this great rejoicing. I've seen that in this church. And those things give God tremendous glory because it says we trust him. We believe that he's good and we live in accordance with that. But there's another thing I want to touch on here before we move on. You know what? A woman is not in control of how much natural beauty she's born with. But she is in control of the inward beauty. And that's what matters most. 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4 says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. It doesn't mean women shouldn't dress nice or wear any jewelry, but it means that the real source of real beauty in God's sight is what's on the inside. We live in a world that's consumed, consumed with outward beauty. But a woman who honors God and glorifies him has a, a greater and an unfading beauty, First Peter says. And so for those of us with daughters, we need to remind them of this. We need to remind them because the world is teaching them something very, very different. I feel sorry for girls and young ladies that grow up without parents or friends around them to point them to the truth of God's word, to teach them this because their whole identity will be wrapped up in their outward appearance. Just this February, the CDC released a new study that found that one in three teenage girls in the United States have seriously considered suicide. One in three. Unbelievable. And 57% reported feeling persistently sad or hopeless. Teenage girls. It's been called a mental health crisis. But by and large, I don't think the problem is mental so much as spiritual. Now, I know there are exceptions. I know there is mental illness. Don't get me wrong. But I just don't think that more than half of our girls have a mental illness. There's a spiritual emptiness that's there. One of the real problems is that for years, an unbelieving world has pushed on our children the lie of evolution. 
And they told him, you know, and, and by the way, this has been done just as swiftly and forcefully as the current lie that there were many genders. Look back. It's the same group. They're forcing this upon our schools and our society. It was evolution back then. It's this whole gender revolution now. Kids have been taught that they're nothing more than an evolved animal that rose by chance out of the primordial soup. From the goo to the zoo to you. This is who you are. And they teach it as though it's true. Evolution robs people of the dignity and the purpose and the glory that God has given them. They don't know that they're special because God has made them special. He made them in his own image. And they don't know that God loves them so much that he gave his only son so that they could become his children. Our schools and our secular society have failed these people, these young people. And so we need to make sure that the church doesn't fail them as well. We need to tell them the good news. This is why it's so vitally important that as a church, we get involved in programs like Crossroads Kids Club that goes into the schools, like the Backyard Bible Clubs this summer. They're so important. We should all be thinking, has God placed me here for such a time as this to get involved in, in telling these young people that they're loved, that they are special, that God made them for a purpose, that they're made in his image? Well, verse 10, it says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Now here we get another glimpse of Esther's character. It's seen in the respect and obedience that she has for her cousin Mordecai. She listened and she respected his wisdom and she followed it. She didn't say, you're just a stupid old man. What do you know? I think a lot of young people today would look at an older bird. You're just a stupid old man. She was submissive and, and, and obedient. And here's the thing. When we submit to the authority that God has placed in our lives, whether it's parents or police officers, or governing authorities, employers, coaches, whomever, when we submit to their authority, who are we actually submitting to? God. God. That's what Romans 13 makes very clear. And the flip side is also true. When we rebel against authorities, we're rebelling against God. Now, the only time we have license to rebel against authority is when obeying them would mean disobeying God. In that case, we must obey God rather than men. But in all other cases, we are to submit to the authority that God has put in our life. Daniel did that. Joseph did that. Esther did that. So verse 11. Every day, he, meaning Mordecai, walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, the ruins of the citadel show that this courtyard of the harem was accessed through a small gate on the western side. And this is a picture of that gate. It could have been this actual gate that Mordecai was walking back and forth by, getting a glimpse inside the courtyard to see how Esther was doing. Now, I don't know, but some people might have wondered what that old man was doing, walking back and forth the courtyard of the women. But we know what he was doing. He loved Esther as a daughter. 
and he had this deep concern for her well-being. We're pretty spoiled by technology these days, aren't we? One of the things I love is that my oldest grandson, almost two years old now, has a Wi-Fi enabled body uh, baby monitor with an HD infrared camera mounted over his crib. Now my younger grandson does too, but we, we can only see the one. Here's what I love the most about it is that grandma and grandpa have been given access. <laughs> so lots of, lots of times in the morning, maybe six in the morning or late at night, Either Deborah or I will look at each other and we'll go, should we check on him? <laughs> Pull up the iPhone or the iPad and we can look in. We can hear him. In the mornings, we can hear him singing when he's waking up. I mean, this is an awesome thing. We can even see the temperature and humidity in the room. <laughs> this thing captures his breathing rate, you know, and it tells you. It'll send you a text if there's any disturbance in the night. I can call my daughter up and say, hey, the humidity's dropping in there. Do something. <laughs> no, it's just really cool technology. Didn't my grandson Gabriel sleeping last night? I love this. You know, I, you know we spy on kids in the womb. <laughs> no, we spy on them in the crib. I don't know what the long-term psychological effects are going to be of this when they learn that their parents and grandparents have been spying on them all their life. But... It sure does make a grandma and grandpa feel good to know how they're doing. Well, it surely made Mordecai feel better to get a glimpse of Esther each day and to know that she was doing okay. He positioned himself and he was in a place working in the citadel where he could be there and he could just look and check on his girl. Well, verse 12, before a girl's turn came to go, go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. Well, here's some of the, the cosmetic vessels and the tools from the Persian era right in that area. Esther received 12 months of beauty treatments. It was probably like the Spasusa. And at least this part of it, hopefully, wasn't unpleasant. But you have to keep in mind the outcome of this. If a lady wasn't the one chosen by the king, she'd be banished to the harem where she'd remain as a concubine. She would seldom, if ever, see the king. She'd be forbidden to have a family of her own, her own husband, and to raise a family. She's basically a widow forever. That would be the outcome. Well, verse 13 says, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. It's probably referring to jewelry and other adornments, maybe a musical instrument. And verse 14, in the evening she would go there and in the morning she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Sh Shashgaz, that's quite a name, baby name, Shashgaz, and the king's, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So this whole thing was clearly for the king's sexual satisfaction. It wasn't just to provide him with company. Every girl, though, that went to the king was considered his wife, not a mistress, but a wife, but with a much, much lower status. And kings would have as many as hundreds of wives. 
Now notice in verse 14 that in the morning she would return to another part of the harem, to the Kershashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She wouldn't return to the same area with the virgins. She's now in the section with the concubines. And we saw that overhead picture of the citadel there, and we see it divided, that women's quarters, the harem divided into two parts. Well, the concubines may have been kept in that larger area under the care of Shashgaz, and the virgins in the smaller area under the care of Haggai. But the, what they find uh, in the excavation matches exactly what we see in the text again. And so verse 15 says, When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. So here again, Esther submissive, she follows the counsel of Haggai. And verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the 10th of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So here we see that Esther is installed as the queen in Persia. And this happens long before there's a threat against the Jewish people. God is moving his people into place. He has Mordecai in a specific place. He has Esther in a specific position for his good purpose. So does this mean then that God condones the type of exploitation of women that we see in this passage? Does that mean that he's supportive of that? No, he didn't cause or condone the immorality. But in his providence, he used it for his good purpose, right? He works all things together for good. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's, again, it's easy to look back and see God's providence in the accounts of Joseph and Daniel and Esther because we're looking back in hindsight. But do we see God's providence when we look around today in the world around us? Do you see it? Do you believe that God is providently working in Washington, D.C.? In our cities, in our schools? Do you see your world falling apart or falling into place? Again, it's easy when we're looking back, but the challenge is what about right now? Well, we should see God's providence. We should be able to be joyful in the midst of this because you know what? We've got the end of the story. We read the end of the book. We know how it ends. Those who are in Christ win. Amen? So we need to be joyful. Well, verse 18 says, And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, if you or I were in Esther's place, wouldn't it be easy to think that God's purpose has been fulfilled? 
I was, I, I cried out to God and he rescued me and he's placed me in a prominent position. I'm the queen. God's purpose has been fulfilled. And indeed, God did bless her. But when God blesses, it's seldom, if ever, just for us. Yes, he blesses, but he desires to bless others through us. Think about Abraham. Genesis 12, 2, God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, New Testament, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See, God blesses us just not, for, not just for our own benefit, but also with the expectation that we'll use those blessings to bless and to serve other people. You could say that God blesses us on purpose. He blesses us for a purpose, and it's not just us. He wants to bless others through us. We always see that when God works. So we should consider, in what ways has God blessed me? We, if we, you know, the old saying, count your blessings. You know, if we can't spend a long time counting our blessings, we got a lot of blessings. In what ways has God blessed me? And then the challenge, how am I using those blessings to bless and to serve the people around me? That's what we need to be thinking about. It's a challenge. It's hard. We need to do that. And then verse 19, when the, virgin, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Now, it's uncertain what this second gathering of virgins refers to. There's a couple different ideas. Some say, well, that's the group that Esther was a part of. And the first gathering of virgins was when King Vashti was selected way back. Well, there's nothing to support that. And besides, during the second gathering, Mordecai's in a different place than he was back then. Another possibility is that even though Esther was chosen as the queen, Xerxes was so pleased with this whole process that he said, hey, let's do that again, so that he could add to the royal harem. That's, I hope that wasn't a case, but that probably is the most likely explanation. But a third possibility is that when Esther was chosen, there were still some virgins that hadn't gone to the king yet. And they may have been gathered together and offered up in marriage to other nobles and dignitaries. We see some of that in the Babylonian literature, possibly. But the key thing here is that Esther continued to keep her nationality a secret. And Mordecai is now sitting at the king's gate. And so this leads us to this final short section, the scheme. In verses 21 through 23. Now, this is not the small gate leading to the courtyard of the women that we saw earlier. It says, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Cherish, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So again, not the little gate, but the king's gate. This was... Not an entrance to the city. It was an entrance to the complex, the citadel. 
And so here's a picture of the king's gate. And this massive gatehouse, it was 130 feet wide and 100 feet long. And the roof was supported by four columns, which didn't survive, but they were estimated to be about 40 feet tall. And here you can see more detail of the gate complex. Remember these gates had chambers off to the side and it's where the officials would meet. And they'd, in, in the city gates, they would have judgment, almost like a court hearing there. Business would be transacted, but this is a little different. This is a gate to the, to the citadel, to the complex, to the palace. And here's a view looking through the gate and down toward where the royal palace would have stood. And so it's right here that Mordecai was sitting. And it's a privileged location within the citadel. And the fact that Mordecai was there tells us that he may have been an official in service to the king by this point. So he's got a, a likely a high position and he's sitting in the gate of the king. And so verse 21 says that Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Now, as they were digging around the ruins of Susa, one of the things they uncovered is these glazed brick reliefs of two Persian soldiers. And you can see these guys are armed. They have a spear. They've got a bow and a quiver full of arrows. And so this is like the closest thing we can get to a, a picture of Big Thana and Teresh. This was right there in the palace, this particular mosaic. So they're armed and they're guarding the doorway, but they're also conspiring to assassinate the king. And it says in verse 22, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Now again, Mordecai was in just the right place at just the right time to hear of this plot. And God's going to use it in a marvelous way in saving the nation of Israel. And so he tells Esther, Esther's in just the right place to communicate it to the king. And it says in verse 23, And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. And this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So we're going to see the importance of Mordecai being credited with saving the king's life. That's going to come up in just a few chapters. So this story, the title of this, of this message and chapter two, the theme of it, is God placing his people. And let's just go back over a few key points as we wrap this up. God is sovereign. He's determined the times and the exact places where every person should live. And he did this so that we would reach out to him and perhaps be saved. God is sovereign. He's also provident. He's actively involved in the affairs of mankind. And he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11 says. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything. That's God's providence. We don't see that as miraculous. We might not even see him doing it. But he's working behind the scenes. Now knowing this, that God's sovereign and that he's provident should bring us confidence and joy when we face opposition and, and even persecution. 
Do we have that confidence and that joy when we look at the world around us? That's a measure of our faith in the sovereignty and the providence and the good purpose of God. The Bible's real history, we can see the evidence of it set in stone. And that's why I like bringing in the archaeological aspect of it. It lines up side by side with our text. It's real history. Another point, our identity and self-worth are found in God. He made us in his image. He's given us dignity and purpose and glory. So don't let the world's obsession with outward beauty drag you down. Don't let them tell you that you're just something that rose out of the goo by accident. God made you in his image. God blesses us to bless and serve others. His blessings aren't just for our own benefit. They do benefit us. But they come with an expectation that we'll use those blessings to bless and serve those around us. And finally, God places his people where he wants them to accomplish his good purpose. And we see that throughout the book of Esther. And we should look for it in our own lives as well. God places his people just where he wants them. Dan opened up this morning saying, you're here in this place at this time. And you know what? God has a purpose in that. And it's a good purpose. But at the same time, we have to get on board with that. We have to respond to God's revelation to us, to his work in our lives. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we sing the song that says, you are a good and gracious God. And Lord, you hold our life in your hands. And we sing that, we agree with that. But when we're in the midst of a trial, when we're facing opposition, when we're facing persecution, it doesn't feel that way, Lord. And yet we need to trust, God. We need to trust that just as you worked in the lives of Esther and Daniel and Joseph, God, that you're working in our lives, that you are providentially arranging people and putting them in places at specific times, God, to draw us closer to you, to strengthen our faith, to work through us in the lives of those around us. And so God, give us eyes to see your work, to see your purpose, and to get on board and to get in line with that, God, and allow you to work through us. We love you, Lord. We love our God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. That's